Welcome to episode 151 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast about using, learning and sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Whether you're a noob or a master sudoer, welcome. I'm Zeb and with me today are the recent CyberDeal best buys of Linux, <laughs> Noah and Ryan. But we just missed out on the last deal and I ended up having to buy Michael as well. So there you go. Oh gosh, he's back. <laughs> I know. So Noah, how's your week been? It's been good. Uh, it's been good. Getting ready for Christmas and doing a lot of things. And my project for this week, if you caught the last ep- episode of the Ask Noah show, which anybody who is anybody has, uh, right. knows that I'm working on, 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 on privacy-aware IP cameras. And so this is my new TP-Link 16-port PoE switch. It's a managed switch that, has, that provides PoE uh, to, to, to the cameras, 140 bucks off of Amazon. And so this is going to be completely separated from the rest of my network. So there's going to be no physical connection for these cameras to the, to the outside world. Um, and it'll exist inside of its little own secure net thing. And of course, because the traffic is, itself is encrypted, and of course, because the NVR that I'm going to be using will be I- encrypted, essentially everything's encrypted. And so I feel pretty good about that. And uh, so that's, that's going to be my project this next coming week and when I find some time. And I'll report back and let you know. But uh, I think the answer is to use technology and continue to use all of the smart devices, but just pick ones, pick smart devices that are not so smart and don't have to be on the internet to work. And then you get all the all the convenience of of modern uh, technology without any of the privacy invasive cloud based subscription based crap. Well, I think what's so great about this in the recent episodes of Ask Noah Show is that. It's been very timely for me. This is something I have a particular interest in, having the security, but also having the security of not having this device being something that other people access, get into that's private. And you are doing all this research. You are looking into all of this equipment, tons and tons of research going into every single company, finding Hours. out where their ties in, how are they going into this uh, how what, how are they making their money? What's their business model? What's their encryption? And you're going into all of this with the audience. So everybody kind of gets to go along the journey with you, which is incredible. And also, I don't have to do any research because I could just listen to what you say <laughs> to buy, buy it and hook it up myself. So uh, no, but it's been, if you haven't been listening lately, definitely check out Ask Noah's show because I think this is a topic everybody's interested in. The solutions you're buying off the shelf are, it, you see it in the news every single week. They're not private. People are breaking into them. They're watching you and your families in your homes. They're doing this to your, t- your smart TVs. They're doing this to these camera packages you buy off the shelf. It's a real problem, and Noah is doing the research to give a real solution to it, so it's an awesome subject. I appreciate it. Excellent. So, Michael, tell us about your week. Well, I've been doing quite a bit. I'm actually going to be working on some new graphics for the show, and that does include changing some OBS stuff. Uh, in in fact, in fact, I'll be consolidating and removing quite a few scenes. So there we go. How many scenes will be down to? I have no idea. It will probably be less than that, but not much less than that. So Um, so at least, at least closer to 150. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely going to be somewhere between 150 to 1050. Uh, So somewhere in there, Uh, but (laughs) that's good. But uh, well, actually, I would like to point out that the the monitor arm is no longer on the the bookshelf. And yes, I actually did install it. I didn't just move it like I I should have done as a joke. But uh, I did actually install it this this weekend. So 
I, I now have a three monitor setup. One of them is now vertical, so that changes the uh, the layout and my and doing all doing this show actually makes it a lot easier having that third monitor. This it took three hours to install the monitor arm, and that might seem ridiculous. And yes, yeah. it normally would be mm -hmm. ridiculous. The reason it took that long is it was like thirty minutes for the actual monitor arm setting up the monitor. It took me about two and a half hours to do the cable management. Because <laughs> I, the cable management is like, that shouldn't be ridiculous either. But I have a sit-stand desk that goes up and down. So I have to make it where I can manage the cables, yet also have them flexible. And when I didn't have the monitor arm, I didn't bother with the management of it. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But it took so much time to manage it just to make sure that the cables didn't get like ripped out of the computer when, the, when it goes up and down. So uh, I learned how to make a weird uh, cable management solution in a sit-stand desk. And uh, yeah, it's kind of fun. My, my solution was also kind of silly, but uh, I like it because it works quite well. I took a cargo net that you get in like an SUV, and that is what's holding the wires underneath the desk. So, so do we well. get him to show us this working in real life without Could his you monitor again? <laughs> yes, I will actually pr prove that it works, and I will show like the the net and everything. I'll ma I'll make a video of it or whatever. And uh, so for the three and a half Michael you know. Tunnell fans out there listening right wow. now, what is <laughs> how long did it take from getting the monitor stand until you installed it? What is the official timestamp? I didn't. How many OBS scenes did you require? <laughs> well, the scenes were actually fine. We only needed three for that, but okay. one per hour of the work. Uh, so I don't I don't know exactly how long it took for me to get it. I, we can look to see. Is when, it weeks or months? Are we thinking here? It's, it's only a Maybe few years. weeks. Like I, I estimated it would only take uh, it would take a month, but it only was three weeks. So oh wow! So you're ahead of schedule. Yes, exactly. I'm actually world. exactly. Yeah. I'm ahead of schedule, and also was consistent with the threes. It took three hours and three OBS scenes and three weeks to set it up. There you go. Excellent. So Ryan, what's new in your world? So if you remember a few episodes back, I discussed this Ryzen build that we could not get working, which mm -hmm. has bugged me for over a month until our next lug event, which happened this Sunday, to get back to this machine to see if we could get Linux to work on this computer. And there were probably many issues that were going on with this machine. Um, we did another BIOS update when, the, uh, when they brought it back in and still could not get Linux to boot. We tried several different distributions again. We were going through kind of re-backtracking through all the steps we had done before to figure why will this thing boot into Windows every time, but will not boot a single Linux distribution. I'd love to sit here and tell you, and we all laughed at the lug event to figure out ways I could spin this, that I figured this out, but I was not the one who figured it out finally. Um, a individual by the name of Zach in the group decided to randomly pull the SATA cable from the Blu-ray drive and swap the SSD positions. So we did do this before. We did change the uh, cables for the SSD drives. We did unplug different drives, but we did not try them in a far enough away slot from the controller. So let me explain. What we found out is this motherboard has two controllers in it. One of those controllers is on the X570 motherboard itself. The other one is a separate Asmedia ASM1061 controller that controls SATA ports 1 and 2. That controller, we believe, is not recognized by Linux. It does not have driver support for it in the kernel. Oh. And therefore, anything plugged into SATA 1 and 2 would not boot. 
anything plugged into any of the other SATA ports, which are controlled by the XF570 motherboard itself, would boot fine. So as soon as we removed it, everything boots. Linux is working. Mission accomplished. So huge thank you to Zach for figuring that out. If anyone is having a similar issue, this is on the MSI A-Pro X570 motherboard that we had it at, but it's something to consider with any motherboard that is running multiple controllers that one of those may not be officially supported by Linux out there. So we finally got this machine to work. They're on Linux. We're so happy about it finally. So uh, a huge success finally uh, on that machine. So all of those who've been sending in their suggestions and comments after that, that was the fix for it. Excellent. So quick question from our patrons. Have you updated the ArchWiki yet? <laughs> you know what? I need to get in there and do that because I have a shirt that says I edit the ArchWiki. So therefore, I have to kind of make it a reality <laughs> since I wear it, right? So Zeb, what have you been up to this weekend? Um, well, I've actually been busy testing the Peppermint 10 respin. As usual, I can't give away any other information. Oh, other come on. Just a it's got Carl's wallpaper on it. There you go. Nice. What, a, what a shocker. Yeah. So from the very first ISO, it's been rock solid um, with some very neat little tweaks and additions. So check it out on a USB stick near you soon-ish, maybe, but better than Michael time for sure. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Awesome. I should be offended by better than Michael time, but I mean, it's fair. Totally fair. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You get all of this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. Now, as Ryan would say, that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also offer over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to st help stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. So you can get started on DigitalOcean for one month free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. Once again, you can get started with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash DL. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Benito writes in to say, hi there, Destination Linux crew. First off, I love your show, and thank you for all the hard work you put in. To make this show what it is, I look forward to every single episode of DL. Now, I have two questions for you guys. One. I know Ryan uses Ubuntu, and he may, oh, I'm sorry, Arch. What? Ryan uses Arch, and he makes it very clear in every episode. No, I, know, I do not. That's ridiculous. No, I guess he does use Ubuntu. I know Michael uses Kubuntu, and to Zeb and Noah, which distro do you guys use as your daily drivers? Well, I guess we'll just take it as we go. So, Zeb, what distro do you use as your daily driver? Well, it's the one with the big red Arch. Peppermint logo on it. So, I use uh, Peppermint os it's based upon ubuntu um, and there's a wonderful guy called mark greaves who manages it and he just grabs all of the components from the various distros around melds them together in a wonderful lightweight quick reliable rock solid ubuntu derivative so yep i use peppermint os i have a workstation that 
I that is kind of like it's like my computer. It's not where I do work. It's not. It's the. It's like the most static, most stable computer in my life. And and that machine has run Fedora since Fedora Core One, and probably will run Fedora forever. And then apart from that, if I just have a, I need to grab an install and just install something. It's Kubuntu if I'm using it. If it's a machine that is a utilitarian machine, like it, it's sitting in the server room and I just need it to you know, look stuff up, or if I need a, a spare machine with a UI to, to run a piece of software, that's usually Zubuntu. And the reason that I heavily base those things off of the Ubuntu base is because that's what most clients, most customers, and most other individuals are going to be using. And if I was going to recommend a distro to somebody else, that's what I would recommend to them. So I, I try to keep my, my core competency in that Ubuntu land. But I just I have a soft spot. In my, I'm a Fedora guy at heart. What can I say? He continues and says, do you have any suggestions for remote desktop software on Linux? That is open source. I've tried TeamViewer, AnyDesk, but we'll love any open source solution that replaces proprietary solutions. What do you guys use for remote support on the desktop? Looking forward to hearing you in the next show. Greetings from Namibia. So as far as if you want open, there's really only one good open source remote control uh, software if you don't want to have the hassle of setting up VPN stuff. If you can handle setting up VPN stuff and you're able to tunnel your traffic, then you can start using things like VNC. But if you want really good, robust remote software, there's only one that I'm aware of that's open source, and that's X2Go. And the thing that's nice about X2Go is it tunnels over the SSH protocol, and so you get a secure uh, environment by default. Additionally, because of the way that X server is set up, you have X server and you have X client, and because we can separate those two things, back in the back in my day, uh, we would do something called X11 forwarding, and and essentially you establish an X you establish an SSH connection with uh, X11 forwarding enabled. And what that allows you to do is when you type Firefox, instead of lo- launching a local Firefox window on the remote side so- or on the uh, local side, it launches that Firefox window on the remote side. So the back end, all of the files that that Firefox is loading from is is happening on the on the on the far side, on the server side, and on the client side, it's actually where that window's being drawn. So you get a local feeling application that's actually uh, conducting network traffic and and performing its tasks on the remote end. What X2Go is, it's the next evolution of that particular implementation of an ability to remotely control a workstation, which is there's now a client and you just you 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 open up X to go client, you click on the workstation you want to connect to, and it does all the magic in the background, and all of a sudden you're presented with a full-on desktop. Now it's a very it's an open source solution, it's a secure solution, it it works very well, it's fairly robust. However, it does require control over the network stack because you do have to forward ports, which also means that you need a static internal IP address and you have to have NAT enabled and, and configured properly to, to to handle remotely connecting in. So if you have control over the network stack, you want something completely open source, X2Go is the way to go. If you want to get, oh, if you're okay budging a little bit on that um, on that open source side, I have I looked at TeamViewer. I tried TeamViewer. Obviously, we have a lot of experience with TeamViewer because it's it's prevalent in the IT world. But I don't like it. And the reason I don't like it is, first of all, the that daemon for for TeamViewer is always running as root, even on the client side, the thing that you're connecting into, and that is concerning to me to say the least. But the other thing is, it's not very featureful. There's not a lot of features there. And so, what I've always recommended to people is a software called Simple Help. And Simple Help is it's not open source software it is proprietary however it runs on linux it's self-hosted so it's not a perpetual fee you pay one time and you own it forever if you want to pay for software maintenance you're welcome to do so and then you get updates if you don't it'll just continue to run the thing that to me makes simple help stand out is the fact that you have so many more features so for example first there is access control lists and so you can go in and say 
on this system, all these machines are enrolled into my simple help server, and so I have access to all these. But John only gets access to these three machines. Michael only gets access to the OBS machine to create his scenes. You know, Ryan, we trust him, so he gets access to everything. And you can define granular granular controls. Additionally, there's a wide feature set and tool set that's available. So anytime I click on a machine, I see things like the host name, the current status. Is it in use? When was the last time it was in use? Are, is, are there any required restarts to complete updates for Windows operating systems? What operating system is it running? What's the last response time that it checked into the server? What services are running? What ports are open? Uh, what IP addresses are assigned to the NICs? All, the, all that information is available without even having to dig in or connect to the machine. That's just information that's presented right away. Simply having the WAN IP address of a remote a machine can can be so incredibly helpful in troubleshooting. If you when you when you go into the hardware details, you can see things like the model number, the serial number, the service tag. If it's a Dell machine, it tells you the processor, uh, you know uh, what's installed in the machine, how much RAM is in there, how much is being used, how much disk space is free. Those kinds of things, if, if you're me and you're managing workstations for other people, that's information you just can't live without. It also tells me all of the apps that are installed, uh, you know, the customer details. And again, I can... Man, I can you're going on like Michael does about KDE here. Yeah, I just, it's one of those things, the tools that you use every day to get your job done, you get passionate about them. And so the yeah, ability to create awesome. like virtual network tunnels and stuff, it's just, I don't have enough good things to say about Simple. It, the only bad thing is it's not open source. So... If you're looking for good, if you want good remote support software, go with X2Go. If you want the best remote support software, give Simple Up a shot. Now, why not something like for simpler, because I don't know what their use case here. Obviously, you look at this from a business perspective, managing small, large networks mm -hmm. and those type of things. If they're just looking to do some things in their home, Mm -hmm. perhaps Remina or something along those lines. Have you played with any Remina's of those? Not, Remina is just a, it's just a client wrapper. It's not, it doesn't, so Remina doesn't really do anything in and of itself. It's the, it's, um, it's like saying I, I use QMMP uh, for, for streaming media. I mean, the QMMP is just the client application that streams the media. It's actually, you know, an ice cast stream that's sitting underneath it. And so, you know, you can use Remina to, there's, there's, uh, there's XRDP. And so you could use, um, it's, it's the RDP implementation under X, but as you might expect, when you take a Microsoft thing and try and hack it together on Linux, it works about as, as you would expect it would. Uh, again, if you have, you can use things like v VNC, but remember, you have to have tunneling technology underneath it because it's not encrypted by default. Gotcha. Um, and so if you had that tunneling technology, then you could use something like Remina. Um, but I just, I, I really, if you want something open source, I really have to say stick with, uh, with X2Go. It's really the best out there. Okay, awesome. So an anonymous user writes in and says, hi, I'm just wondering if you can help me and everyone else who might have the same concern as me. I have a MacBook Pro 2019, which is very good hardware, 32 gigabytes of RAM, eight cores, touch bar. I'm not sure if you'd consider that good or bad. Uh, it's good. I can't open it up and fix it as I'm not sure if I will be able to put it back together again afterwards. That's one way of looking at it. The problem with all the good hardware is that it's Mac OS driving it underneath, and this makes him mad the whole time. He wants Linux where you would be in control, but haven't found any ISO that can just put on a USB and it will just work. I figured out the secure boot chip already. So for those who don't know, my, uh, MacBook has put what they call T-chip into their new line of computers, which has kept many of these machines, although some people have hacked around and been able to work around it a lot of them still are not working with anything Linux on it. So I've seen some sort of Arch kernel for MacBook and kernel 5.3 as support for the Apple keyboard. But while I have installed it inside VMware Fusion to do it on a real computer will be a bigger challenge. 
is I don't want to break my Mac nice show. I like the idea of the job board and he's talking about on our discourse forums, which if you haven't checked out, you need to go check out. That's where you get all the content on all the shows uh, where discussions and things are happening on our destinationlinks.network. Check out the discourse forum. Uh, we put up a job board as well because there's a lot of folks in the community who are looking for work. So if you know of jobs and that your company's hiring, you can put it there. Um, also, if you need help with your resume and things like that, we have sections like that there for you. So interesting question. I have recently been playing with and repairing MacBooks for some friends, as well as playing with some MacBooks that have uh, some older ones. The The issue with this question is, and the problem with Mac is it used to be you could get a Mac had one of the only computers that had the aluminum unibody, that kind of beautiful feeling, aesthetically pleasing laptop that they have. But that is no longer the case. That was one of the primary reasons a lot of people wanted a MacBook. It also used to be that MacBook, especially with the Air, had one of the thinnest and most portable laptops out there. And that was a big reason for people like me who are travelers that I don't want to, I have to bring a work computer that's thick and obnoxious. And I don't want another thick and obnoxious computer to put in my backpack to pull out at TSA. So the air made sense, but that's no longer the case as well. The Pinebook Pro, for instance, that I took on the trip is just as thin uh, or as close to it as possible. And there are other Dells and other machines out there that are just as thin as well. So this thing that Apple had in the past that kind of made them unique in the market is no more. And in fact, I would say most of the companies out there like Dell are surpassing MacBooks in their aesthetics. For instance, the Infinity screen is a perfect example of something that has just completely, in my book, wiped out any of the advantage that MacBook had. It's just this, it's so beautiful to have no bezel on your screen. And what I'm getting at is you bought a MacBook that has one purpose and, and Apple is doing a, a tremendous disservice to the community by continuing this because they, by the way, they only support their products from between going through their entire history, four and six years. You're spending a massive, you spent a massive amount of money to get this MacBook that you have here. And in four to six years, you're not going to be able to get on the latest Mac OS anymore. It's going to be deprecated. You have almost no ability with their T-chip to work around the Linux and, and get Linux or other operating systems on it. So it's complete e-waste. My recommendation, honestly, to you, and this is somebody who's had MacBooks, repairs MacBooks, you know my history with this, is sell this thing. If it's past, you can't take it back anymore and get a different machine. There is nothing Mac has out right now in the laptop market that has any reason to keep it above going out and buying uh, Adele, I got the new Lenovo Flex 14, by the way, in this week. It is so incredibly beautiful and you can flip it over and turn it into a tablet and you can draw on it and all of and it's the hardware is just gorgeous and you can put Linux on it. So it, there's no reason to have a MacBook. Worst case scenario, sell it on eBay, get as much money back as you can for it and you could probably afford a far more powerful machine and one that you can customize without going through this headache of trying to figure out if Linux can work on it. That's my recommendation. Yeah, I'd have to agree that there's really no there's really no solution for people having like the latest MacBook because they're doing Apple's doing as much as possible to make it difficult to even get it to boot, uh, much less also having a touch bar. So, I mean there's that. Yeah, and no ports. Let's not forget that. Yeah, no ports and a touch bar. 
Whereas, oh, no, I think you now get like three USB C, so that's something. Uh, you'll need it for a micro SD card or anything else. My, the <laughs> the wonderful world dongles. of Apple dongles. Yep. Yes, exactly. So we love hearing from our worldwide community. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send us a short email or a video that will get incorporated into the show. Send your video links or emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. When we launched the Destination Linux Network, we also wanted to partner with our growing community to find ways we could give back. So we put up a post on our discourse forum and asked the community to provide us feedback on the charities you would like us to work with. Free Geek was highly recommended by many of you, and we're so excited to partner with them and launch our first giving back campaign. Free Geek's mission is to substantially reuse technology and enable digital access and education to the community. The best part is they have many ways for everyone to get involved. So to kick us off, we would like to welcome Hilary Shohoney to the show. Hilary is a Free Geeks manager of development and manages the relationships between Free Geek and the local community, working on issues like the digital divide. Hilary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We're really thankful to be a part of this. No, that sounds great. And we're really pleased that you've, you've agreed to work with us. So let's start off by learning a little bit about you. Um, how did you first get involved with Free Geek? Yeah, so uh, years ago, about 10 years ago now, I had left my corporate job at Microsoft and decided that I wanted really badly to get into nonprofits. And I joined a nonprofit. And just like most nonprofits, they struggled for money. And I had no computer at work. And I was biking back and forth to work with uh, my laptop in my bike bag, which is a terrible decision. Of course, I fell, broke my laptop, then had no personal computer and no work computer. Oh, my gosh. Um, and we had this really lovely volunteer who let me know that Free Geek would grant us technology. And within a couple of weeks after hearing that, I received my first Free Geek grant. And then I received many other free geek grants in the like, you know, next eight years at other nonprofits. And I also went in and purchased my own personal computer at a really, really reasonable rate from the store and fell in love with free geek. Then, then I saw obviously the job posting and knew that it was meant for me. So very nice. So the, Digital equity, or what some refer to as the digital divide, is uh, a growing concern that we're hearing a lot more about, which is a good thing in the communities. Uh, according to your website, for instance, 17% of the U.S. population alone does not have access to a computer, and they don't have access to a phone. And there are things that companies like FreeGeek are doing that contribute to that, but before we started a, the interview, you were telling us this personally hit you like you were talking about here in that you had no computer anymore. And if you think about getting a job today, if you think about doing research to submit your resume, every single thing is done online. And so that makes it nearly impossible for those who don't have access to something like that to be able to apply to jobs, to be able to uh, afford uh, to get the technology to be able to get a job uh, that would allow them to. So it's, it's a, it's kind of a cycle that continues to go round and round. And I'm really interested in this because I think this is one of the, the things that free geek does. That's quite amazing is how does free geek help bridge that divide? 
Yeah. So when we think about the digital divide, there are multiple kind of components or tiers to the bridge that kind of hold it up. So one of them obviously is internet access. Um, and FreeGeek tries to connect with local providers to find low-cost internet options for folks who would qualify for them. But the kind of most notable thing that we do is we help provide a device. So we have a lot of opportunities to get free computers through a number of programs. Some of them require no qualification at all, um, and others are specifically targeted to populations who don't have access to a device or the knowledge to use it. The other thing that we provide is education. So we have a classroom on-site, but we also do off-site education. And we provide about 4,000 hours of community ed a year for free to the community. And then above and beyond that, every computer that we sell in our store has six months of tech support. So if you have a computer, it breaks, you can't use it. It's not really of much, it has no purpose anymore. So what we try to do is provide that you know, tech support. But then if you're granted or given a free computer from FreeGeek, you get a full year of tech support. And I know wow. that our wonderful tech support staff will actually step up and help a lot of folks even beyond that. So it's a really amazing kind of wraparound program to try to get people the services and devices that they need so that they can fully participate in the digital economy. That's awesome. Incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what are some misconceptions you hear about the digital divide, like just in the, you know, w dealing with people who are you know, just learning about free geek and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think there are a number of misconceptions that I hear. The most prevalent, I think, is that now that we all have smartphones, the digital divide doesn't matter. I think that that is a really big misconception. One, it's really hard to type a paper for school on a cell phone. It's really <laughs> difficult a lot of things on a cell phone and we meet people every single day and that is their experience. Yeah. Um, and I also think there's a misconception that if you suddenly, you know, get a device and have the internet, you're now digitally connected. We have a lot of folks who just need access to the knowledge and folks to help them use their device. So you can't, it's, you can't just do one thing and solve the problem. It really has to be about providing a full service experience for folks so that they feel like they're included. And I don't know how many people that we meet that say, oh, you know, I've had this computer for 10 years. I've never used it, um, especially seniors. We have a lot of folks who, who really are digitally divided. And um, the other thing that I hear is in certain areas that are more affluent, that it's not a problem. Mm. I would say that it's an even bigger problem because in order to participate in, you know, say Portland where I'm located, you have to, as you were saying, have access to a computer to type a resume. You have to know how to type. You have to know how to use a mouse. You have to know all of these things in order to get just a basic job. And many, many people are lacking in these skills. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting. The misconception, I've worked with several organizations around the digital divide. And one of the misconceptions I hear a lot is that it's not a problem in the United States. Um, so people, yeah, people do not think that this impacts the United States and, you know, maybe they live in a more affluent area and they don't see it. But I can tell you in working with some kids and getting them access to computers that it changes their life. Because prior to that, they're given homework assignments that their only option is to, there's a libraries are too far away. There's no bus routes to get them to a library. And their only option is to take old encyclopedias to try to look up information in order to do their homework. And think about what a disadvantage that is to a child when the other children in that school whose parents may have enough money for internet and a computer, they can just search 
on the internet to get the answer to what they need. It's a it's a massive problem that impacts people in all ages, and it's an issue not only here in the United States but across the world, of course. And I love some of the ways that you guys are going about and addressing that specific problem because it's not one faceted. You can't just hand a computer to somebody and say, "Oh." We fix the digital divide. Um, it, you have to go further. You have to teach them how to use the yeah. computer. You have to, um, you know, obviously get them uh, internet connections at some point so that they can get online. There's just a lot of facets to this that, that make it go around. And I think the way you guys are going about it is fantastic. Yeah. And do you, do you think that the post PC era is a, a, a thing that people say that is, is one of the things that is helping for towards the misconception that is being created about the digital divide? Because people are now, because of the whole smartphone thing, they're just talking about that we're no longer in the PC era, but it's, it's one of those things that is not going to go away for decades, even though it's being promoted as if it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's definitely a component. I feel like for folks, they're like, well, you know, I have a smartphone. I do everything on my smartphone. And that's not true. I cannot type an email. I couldn't get the questions, you know, for this interview from you all <laughs> if you had to type them on a phone. I can't even type a long text message. I hate it. Right. So, yeah. And it's not that I can't. I mean, I there's a young woman whose story I love who got her free geek computer and she was like a, I think a freshman in high school at the time. And when we ask people what they're going to use their free geek computer for, and she cried and she said, I can't wait to do my homework. Yep. And wow. Wow. we said, Oh, okay. And she said, I've been typing my term papers on my cell phone. Yep. Imagine typing wow. 10 pages on your cell phone. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds absolutely miserable. And I think a lot of people are having that experience and, you know, I hope that at some point we're in a post PC society, but I, we're not there yet and we have a long way to go. So yeah, for sure. One of the missions that I liked about free geek is to reduce e-waste. So can you tell our audience why e-waste is a concern that needs to be addressed? I mean, I think there are multiple parts to this. I feel like one, there are really precious resources that are inside of your computer. Sure. So there's precious metals. Um, there are also really harmful chemicals. And for us, it's really about working with the abundance that's around us in order to better serve our community. So instead of thinking of it as waste, we think of it as a resource, right? Mm -hmm. So this computer that I have might not be useful to me, but the reality is there are more smartphones in the world than there are people. There are more devices in the world than there are people. We should be able to use those devices to connect folks. So that's one component of it. But the other thing that happens with e-waste that's really unfortunate is frequently we have organizations that kind of pretend to recycle e-waste um, mm -hmm. and then it gets sent to countries where there are fewer restrictions on e-waste and oh. um, really terrible things happen where folks are tearing apart computers for the precious metals that are inside. Maybe they're touching circuit boards, trying to get it gold with their hands and it's getting into the water. It's causing disease. I feel like that is a huge issue and people frequently tell me, oh, e-waste isn't a problem anymore. You know, we've solved that issue. And every day we hear of some recycler who isn't doing their due diligence, isn't following the, the stream down. And we really find that items are still going into, you know, landfill, into people's backyards, essentially, mm -hmm. um, and are leaching into the water and into the soil and really causing a lot of harm. 
so so how do you how do you battle that i mean you must obviously do your due diligence to get your partners that you work to but then do you have like people who go around and spot check let's see do these guys actually get rid of it properly so there's this really wonderful organization called ban that actually puts trackers and devices i don't know if you've ever watched any of their videos but they're fascinating and we love that they do that um because we work, we have to kind of trust a certain number of partners. We audit everybody mm. and we're audited as well. But you do have to kind of like follow the stream, right? And so what Band does is they hide little tracking, little GPS tracking devices in machines. And then they follow them to their destination. And you'll find some really, really amazing places that these things go. Wow. The other cool thing that happens is we have this brilliant guy on staff who cares very deeply about e-waste. And he studies everything, builds a lot of partnerships with people. And he can track like from the metal, like from when it comes in our door to the final output when it's a commodity. So he's not tracking it until it like leaves the U.S. He's tracking mm-hmm. it until the wires become copper again um, and are resold on the market. So I think that that's a really important thing is watching the end to end on it and seeing that those are actually being you know, melted down, where they're being melted down and where they're being sold, because that can really tell you a lot about the supply chain. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think what's interesting, too, is seeing how many computers are being built that contribute to this idea of e-waste. They're, they're built in such a proprietary way that they, you know, in Linux, this is where Linux comes in a lot and helps, it, that they purposefully basically make them worthless because they stop supporting the software on it. Um, they <coughs> solder everything onto the board. Oh, was that? Did you have a cough there? Oh, Mike? sorry. Oh, sorry. It was just a random <laughs> cough that happened. Sorry. I thought I heard Apple there, but yeah. maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was just a cough. Um, but it's it's interesting that so many companies are doing this. And I think as consumers, those of us who can afford to go out and get new computers, I think it's an important question that people should be asking is, is this something that's actually upgradable? Is it made to be basically thrown away or thrown into the garbage once it dies? Because you're absolutely right. There are precious metals that people mine all around the world in terrible conditions to get to build these machines, which is a problem in itself. But once it's there, if it's just meant to be thrown in the garbage, and I get so many computers from people who are like, hey, my husband's just going to throw this in the trash. Do you want it? Yes, I want it. But that's the natural response is just to throw it away because it's two or $300 to repair it or go to a, to a, a shop would be $150 probably minimum. So mm-hmm. you can't repair it. And instead of giving it away to an organization like you, uh, they throw it in the trash. And, and that to me is just, it, it's such a terrible waste, but it's something we should all be conscious of when we're purchasing something is, are, are these companies purposefully making devices that are go, meant to be basically thrown away with all this precious metals? With that said, what are some ways Free Geek is helping to reduce the e-waste? What are some of the things you you do in the organization specifically? Yeah, so I mean, it obviously starts with our model. So when I think of Free Geek, I like to think that we take in used technology, refurbish that technology, and out folks who need it. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a circular model instead of this kind of linear, you know, computer goes to end user, end user throws the computer in a landfill. Yeah. Um, we kind of create a full loop which makes a big difference, but I wish I could just take you on a tour of Free Geek right now. That would be Um, awesome. (laughs) So what we do is when technology comes into the building, we assess that technology and we say, okay, this part of this computer is reusable, this part is not reusable by us, or this is completely obsolete. And then we recycle it down to its base components using volunteer labor. Um, We also have 50 staff people, but 
what they're primarily doing is kind of leading those volunteers to help us recycle it. And then those volunteers in turn will earn a free laptop or desktop of their choosing. Nice. So the other thing that we do is we try to reuse as much as possible. So that giant bin of cables that one of you has behind you. Noah. Um, <laughs> we all have that in our house, right? So sometimes folks have devices that might need that cable in order to be functional, or maybe they just need that cable. So we kind of take everything apart and put it back together. So, you know, say you have an extra aux cable, you could buy an aux cable in our store for like 50 cents to a dollar. Say you have a charger for a certain phone, an Apple iPhone, perhaps. Right. Um, that's proprietary. We have those because people recycle them with us. So we hold on to those things and use as much as possible. Uh, but I think reuse is really the key. So trying to get those devices that are extra devices into the hands of folks who need them. And we also try to be at the forefront of, you know, legislative efforts like right to repair, uh, trying to make sure that just what you said, obsolete devices aren't being created so that, you know, in two years, you're, you're, Apple laptop or your Chromebook aren't having to be recycled immediately. We can actually create some longevity with devices. So. You, you mentioned something that's really fascinating that I'm on just the beginning of learning about is this rights to repair situation. Mm -hmm. So if I understand the problem here um, so that the community can kind of start researching this, basically some companies make it difficult, if not impossible to uh, officially be allowed to repair, be a repair shop for certain devices. And what this does is limit the amount of choice that somebody has who has acquired one of these devices to actually get it repaired in an official shop without spending massive amounts of money or traveling or trying to find a shop that can officially repair it and or making sure that they, another issue I understand in this is that they keep the design documents proprietary so that nobody knows the type of chips or solutions that they're using inside the components. So it's, there's no way to find replacements to actually repair something that's a, you know, a simple solder job uh, because they don't publish any of those documents. Is there anything additional in that? Did I cover that well to your best of your knowledge? Yeah, I think for me, it, the truth always comes out in like these stories, right? So mm -hmm. We regularly have people come into our tech support department and they are experiencing difficulties with technology. And one of my favorite stories that happened was somebody brought in a cell phone and they said, my cell phone just stopped working. It won't charge anymore. We don't know what's happening. And so uh, one of our techs opened the phone up and realized that it was like a little watch battery, you know, one of those little tiny flat batteries that had died. Everything else with the phone was perfectly fine. And we were able to replace that battery for a person for, you know, a dollar. Right. Not a deal. Mm. When the company that manufactures that phone realized that people were doing that, they started gluing the batteries in. Oh, wow. That's and awesome. I think this happens over and over again. I got really frustrated. I had a phone recently that I had to replace because the company that made it wouldn't support it anymore. And I think that that happens really frequently as well. So it's not just that you can't get it repaired by anyone, but the company who manufactured it. It's also that at a certain point, they just stop repairing the devices for you, which makes them obsolete, inherently makes them obsolete. Yeah. So right to repair for us is something that isn't a huge impact on us yet, but it's becoming more and more of an impact on us. So you mentioned Apple earlier, and I'm sure we'll probably have to edit this out so we don't get sued. Um, <laughs> we'll just put in our opinion. Yeah, there in you our go. Opinion. Now you're safe. In our opinion, yeah. we really 
deal frequently with devices that are Apple devices that cannot be repaired because there's some sort of proprietary lock or we have to reverse engineer a computer that's exactly the same in order to learn. So we need like 15 of the same computer in order to rebuild one device. Yeah, it's a challenge. We had um, recently trained a bunch of folks to do the master tech repair classes. And in order to prepare for that class, we had to purchase six identical phones so that we could break those identical phones so that we could then have phones for them to repair. And like, we knew what was inside of them and how to not oh, break. Wow. Mm-hmm. So just to, to sort of sidestep this slightly, is this right to repair a philosophical belief or is there any sort of legislature that might be coming out to prevent these manufacturers from deliberately doing this? So there are legislative efforts. Um, Similarly to, I think in 2013, there were things that happened with um, automobile right to repair. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of modeled a bill off of that and several states are trying to pass legislation and it hasn't hit a huge peak interest yet. I think we'll get there eventually. We've just really started. And we introduced in Oregon last year, we won't reintroduce this year because it's a short session, but we'll reintroduce it the following year. But essentially if one state approves the bill, then all states will follow suit because they'll have to publish the repair documents and then they'll have to make uh, OEM parts available and they'll have to make licensing available for uh, fixing their devices. So like most things though, if you do some research on this, this is being fought. There's some really great footage on YouTube about Boston uh, state doing some legislation around this or doing some hearings around it. And it's very interesting. There's a lot of company representatives from some of these well-known companies coming in and basically trying to block some of this legislation, right? And, and making cases against the ability for right to repair, because what if, you know, we got to protect people. So what if somebody did that repair wrong and you'd, you'd have a broken phone or what, what, you know, they, they just come up with some random things to throw in there. So make no mistake, like most things, there's a lot of money being made in this mm-hmm. kind of yeah. um, throwaway culture we have. And these companies, a lot of companies are not interested in allowing this legislation to go through with rights to repair. So it's a very important cause to get involved with. And I'm really happy to hear Free Geek is, you know, doing their part in it as well. Yeah, that's and, awesome. And staying forward with it. Yeah, there's there's such a ridiculous situation with other things. Like there's it's not even just like devices and there's actually a like an issue with the tr- some tractors some tractor companies where when you purchase a tractor you don't even own that tractor you are licensed like you just get the license to use the tractor and you have no right to repair or fix anything at all and you have to go to that particular company's repair shop in order to do it and like that's one of the like original right to repairs thing like kind of like latched onto that because they're like you have n- like no ownership whatsoever and it's just like like the level that these companies are going to it like ensure that there is much as much wasteful resources as possible is just it's in, it's kind of insane really uh, so it's it's one like having an organization like free greek that's actually you know putting effort into trying to stop it is is a, is a fantastic thing so thank you very much for that we have to do it in order to survive so <laughs> yep <laughs> yes. have to be a part of it. Absolutely. And uh, so uh, speaking of other things that Fairy Geek is doing, they're doing you're doing like an educational and computer literacy issue, like like educational programs and stuff like that to solve uh, parts of the literacy far as computer goes and that kind of thing. So tell us about those educational programs that you're doing. 
Yeah, so we have a number of programs. One of my favorites is called Welcome to Computers. And what we do is we kind of work with other local nonprofits who've identified folks who, you know, maybe don't know what a computer is, have never touched a mouse in their life, um, have never used a keyboard. And we identify these folks and then we provide translation into eight languages. We um, provide food and childcare. And then we teach six to eight weeks of classes, depending on what the students need. Sometimes it's only four weeks if students are a little bit more computer literate. And then at the end of that class session, they get their own laptop to take home with them. Nice. A really fun example of this has actually been an organization called Transition Projects that works with the uh, folks experiencing homelessness. And what they've been doing is trying to hire folks who've experienced homelessness. And they realized that there was a gap in their staff of folks who had been hired because obviously they understand the issues of homelessness. If you've experienced it, you understand it. Right. But they didn't have the basic technical skills to get by. And so we were able to come in and help teach those programs and then provide them with home computers so they could practice those skills, but then help them keep a job. So it gets pretty pretty cool. But that, that's one program. There are many, many others. Some serve K through 12 students. And we kind of try to meet people wherever they're at. Yeah, it's something that we take for granted, right? We... I, I grew up around computers. My dad owned a computer shop. So I was lucky enough that computers were part of my life my entire childhood, which, you know, for my generation was unusual. Today's generation, it's not as all a lot of kids are around it. Uh, but I remember back then we did a, a series of community computer tutoring things and we had people come in and I was, uh, my dad asked me to teach the first class and I told everyone, pick up your mouse and move your cursor to this icon. And I saw some individuals picking up, literally picking up their mouse and hitting it on the screen. And this just shows you that, that we take this for granted, right? Like you move mm -hmm. your mouse cursor over here, you click it, and it, it does the thing we want. But I didn't realize I have to start from the very beginning of what all of this stuff is. I just took it for granted that I knew this because I grew up with it. And there's a lot of people who don't have that. And in the workplace today, you pretty much have to have some computer skills. I know a lot of my friends who are in construction and things along those lines are telling me now it's a part of their job when they need to fill out job requests, when they need to uh, put notes on what has happened in the job. It's all done through the computer and I've had to do uh, courses with them as well. So every single job out there is now requiring some component of having a computer and you taking the time to teach people that is just a resource that will be with them for the rest of their life. That's going to help them everywhere, which is just incredible. We're, we're really happy to do it. It's uh, For me, it touches, I, I grew up in a rural area without much digital access, and I remember going off to college. One, first getting to college was hard because we don't file applications online. Right. It's a whole different world. But I didn't really know how to type when I entered college. I had yeah. like one typing class, uh, and I didn't have a home computer. I didn't have a laptop either. So I the, the learning curve was steep. And it definitely took me a lot longer to get through school. It took me a lot longer to find meaningful employment. It took me a lot longer to do a lot of things than does most folks. So it is a basic skill that we all need. And I think digital access is becoming a right instead of a privilege. Absolutely. So uh, digital access, digital divide, it's all great. And of course, uh, we all want people to have computers. But those computers are basically useless unless they have Linux. So tell us how Linux and open source has, I'm sure, completely enabled this entire project to, to exist. I'm sure that's what you're going to say. <laughs> yes. Um, so awesome. almost all of our computers have Linux on them. Um, yes. We absolutely love Linux because it allows us to have 
a free and open source operating system that is able to be installed on a lot of computers that wouldn't be able to be refurbished otherwise. And it makes, it kind of adds to the longevity of a machine's life. So whereas an Apple machine might only last for so long, if we have a Linux-based PC, we can kind of update that machine. Yeah, you can. Kind of ad nauseum. And we really appreciate that. I mean, it makes makes everything possible. Also, the software programming that's available for folks. If oh, you, yeah. If you have to pay for Word and you have to pay for Excel and then you're paying for Photoshop and you're paying for all these things, that becomes another point at which people can't afford to engage. And so being able to teach classes that show people that they don't need to pay, that they can find free services that will really help them is life-changing to our participants. And I think we have a lot of folks who used to tell us, oh, we really want a Windows machine. Windows is super important to us. We did all the work to make Windows available. And what we're finding is, yeah, some people really, really need Windows, but most people come back to us and say, you know, I think Linux works better. Yep. That's fantastic to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have a really, really fantastic relationship uh, with Linux. And I think for us, we're really proud to be a part of a movement that empowers people to kind of take control of their own devices and take control of their learning and take control of their experience on a computer. So what distro are you guys using? What, what, I mean, I'm sure it probably varies depending on, on, on the person's needs, but if, if you have somebody comes in and they say, I'm a college student, I need X, Y, Z. I mean, what does that computer go out the door with by default? That is a really good question. Straight over my head. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Ubuntu but, probably. <laughs> no, I think we're using, so we're using Linux Mint. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Um, and I know I have on, on the website, we have like basic specs for our computers, but in general, again, I am slow to technology. So I. No, Linux Mint is good. Mm-hmm. That, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, actually, it's one of the ones that we've talked <laughs> about many times as a good distro for beginners out there to, and, and it has that windows like feel. So if anybody had any prior experience at all. It kind of has that similar uh, view, in the, at least with the Cinnamon desktop when you first come on and things like that. So I, I think this is a really interesting point that you hit on because when you talk about the software in Linux and the cost when you're in another operating system for that software, it is a massive barrier, but not just for just everyday people who are just trying to get a job in those things, but also think about the arts kids and and those growing up that want to be musicians, that want to be artists, that want to uh, do something in the arts world that they have no ability to afford. Their family has no ability to afford this software to be able to try to do recordings, to try to do art programs or build anything. They have this beautiful creative mind, no outlet for it because they can't afford it. Open source comes in and says, hey, we're going to give you this software for free. It costs you nothing. It has many of the same features, in many cases more, than the alternatives out there. It's a huge huge game changer. It's almost like you couldn't have done this program without having open source available out there. And I just, I think that's one of the things that drew me in and has kept me in the open source world is the fact that, you know, from the arts perspective as well, it gives so many people an opportunity to do things they otherwise would have no ability to do. This point is so meaningful. Yep. I, I just want to ask a follow-up question. How, how has the community support been? You know, when you go out, let's say a piece of software maybe doesn't work quite the way it's expected, or you find a need that a that a user has, and they come to you and say, hey, this laptop is great, but this, this one thing doesn't work. 
are you working at all with the community to try to improve the ecosystem as a whole as it as it relates to your needs? Yeah, so Plug is a local group that we work with, and actually it's hosted at our site um, and a number of other Linux user groups. Many of our staff belong to them and try to participate really actively because there are needs that arise regularly where we can say, hey, this is what a digitally divided person is experiencing. It's maybe different than what you're experiencing. Can we work together to make something happen? And so I think that feedback loop is so integral to making this whole thing work. That's my experience for sure. And Plug is Portland Linux Unix Group. Yep. Uh, one of our, our patrons posted in there. So you guys are based out of Portland, Oregon. I know there are some other organizations that I think have a similar name, if not the same as Free Geek, but we're dealing with the Portland, Oregon, obviously, uh, version there to clarify for everybody. Free Geek actually started in Portland about 20 years ago. And we, for years and years, gave our name away to anybody who had the same exact model as us or close enough. We said you could take it, do what you will, serve the community. Very open source of you. It was very open source of us. Uh, We have since decided that there are some risks there that we don't really (laughs) want to accept, but we do love that we have other free geeks throughout the country and actually throughout the world. So Nice. But are are you primarily then helping people in Portland, Oregon, or is it the whole of the U.S., or does it spread further than that? Yeah, so um, I don't know if there's a way to share this with you, but I have a really cool interactive Google map that can show you kind of everyone that we've served as a Portland location. And we are trying, it's worldwide, but we are actually trying to become more hyper-local and then letting other organizations that do similar work Mm -hmm. to us serve their communities because we find that we can't be very efficient, you know, serving people in Uganda. Right. We're not not there. (laughs) So, uh we're trying to do a really good job of showing up in groups like AFTR. That's A-F-T-R-R. Um, it's an association for nonprofit technology refurbishers and trying to share our best practices, things that we've learned so that other groups can learn and also we can learn from them. So we try to engage in that really actively, but mostly Portland. And I'll share that map with you. And if you all edit and want to put it up on the screen, you can. Absolutely. That'd be brilliant. One of the things that, that people like to see is the human side of all of this geekiness. So have you got, what's some of your favorite stories that have happened where you think, woohoo, this was a real success? Yeah, um, I try really commonly, because part of my job is sharing stories with people to connect with the stories. And I feel like it always makes doing my job feel worthwhile. Yeah. One of my very favorite stories was this sweet, sweet young lady named Lenore who through our plug into Portland program, she's a, she was a 10 year old at the time I talked to her. She received a free free geek computer and I called and interviewed her and we talked for like 30 minutes and she told me all about what her experience had been not having a home computer and not being able to access her homework and actually being sent home with different homework and how that made her feel really left out because a lot of what students are doing online is engaging with each other. But also she had to take home like a special binder every day. And I don't know, as a free lunch kid, I remember not wanting to tell the lunch people that I was a free lunch kid. So I can only imagine a binder is super embarrassing. But she shared with me that now her homework is much more interactive. She also shared with me that she loves sharing her computer with her family because they didn't have a computer. Um, And she told me over the phone, she said, Hillary, there's this really exciting world out there and now I get to be a part of it. And of course, five minutes in, I was crying, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm fighting um, it right now. That's also, that's awesome. 
Yeah, it was really sweet. And then this other story that I love is um, this woman named Batula. And Batula was a part of our Welcome to Computers program. And she was referred to us uh, by an organization called Metro East. She's a Somali refugee. And she had come to the United States and had no technical skills. We were able to provide her with a computer and basic skills. Um, and Batula now translates for us for our Welcome to Computers classes as a paid translator. Um, and she helps teach uh, computer classes at the library. And um, she's a really magical story, too. That's so. amazing. So I know, <laughs> <laughs> I know what everybody's thinking right now is, how do I get involved? Because this is obviously clearly an amazing organization. And like Zeb said at the beginning, all right, we, we pulled our community when we decided to make a network of all of these shows. We knew we had this massive audience and we wanted to do something with that audience for good. And we wanted an organization um, that allowed people to contribute in many different ways, uh, not just financially, but also uh, other ways as well. And Free Geek was the one that the community came and recommended that we picked. And so we have set up a page for individuals who wish to contribute financially, because that's always important, having the funds to do these new programs and extend out. However, there are additional ways for people to get involved. For those who are interested, you can donate hardware. And if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, they could also reach out and potentially volunteer there as well to help out in the area. But I guess besides uh, of the financial donations, could you go into a little bit about the hardware donation and the volunteering options that are available? Yeah, so we will take any of your hardware. We love to either recycle or refurbish it, but right now we have a really big need for laptops. So if you have extra laptops sitting around, um, we've had to Michael. slow down some of... <laughs> Michael. Look at that. Look at that. I bet you're drooling over there looking at his background because look at all those laptops. Yeah, they're per they're currently <laughs> just they're just part of my set, but they could totally be shipped off to Free Geek too. Exactly. Yeah, so we have uh, a really big need for laptops. We've actually been running out every month because we're providing so many. So laptops are one of our big needs. You can also support us by shopping our store. So half of what Free Geek receives we sell and the other half we give away. So if you purchase things that are refurbished through Free Geek, that is a really huge way that you can support us that also benefits you. Our stuff is typically very low priced and very high quality, so I would encourage that. The other thing that you can do is volunteer. So we have many opportunities to volunteer recycling, but the thing that I would suggest, especially to this audience, is consider becoming an educator for Free Geek. We provide teacher trainings. We really, really need teachers all the time. Uh, the more teachers we have, the more education we can provide. So those are the ways that I would love to have you all get involved. You can you know, follow us on social media, see what we're doing. All of those things are wonderful ways to engage, but volunteer, donate technology. Cash is always helpful. Send us your laptops, please. Because there's a lot of people here who love to teach and educate. Is that something that is more for those who are in the Portland, Oregon area, or can anybody get involved in the teaching aspect of it? I think right now it's primarily in the Portland metro okay. area, but what I would say is connect with our education department. You can just email education at freegeek.org, and we will happily try to connect you so that at some point you can help us uh, okay. reach folks. And it might mean that we connect you with an organization that's closer to you, and we're also working on eventually having some online programming, making that possible. So if people want to help us make that a possibility, we would love the assistance. So again, we try to work with the abundance that's around us in order to serve our community best. Fantastic. 
So you've already said about the kind of hardware you wanted in the sense of like the laptops and that kind of thing, but but we have a very large audience that is all around the world. How do they get the laptops to you? How do they send the the, the hardware to the to FreeGeek? So what I would do is reach out to donations at freegeek.org if you need logistical help, but you can mail anything to our address, which is on our website, and we will accept technology donations. Also, if you want to get connected to an organization that's closer to you to give laptops to them because maybe it's logistically simpler for you, we'd be happy to help with that as well. And you can email me and I will help you do that. And you can email me at giving at freegeek.org. It's probably the easiest way to get to me. Perfect. And I noticed some patrons were asking maybe they could get their companies to donate their hardware once they're done with them that work for bigger organizations. Is that if they were to arrange something like that, would they just email you at the giving email address to set it up with their corporation, perhaps to donate their extra hardware? Yeah, it's a really um, actually corporate donations are probably the most meaningful donations. And I appreciate whoever in your audience said that because it makes I forgot to say it Um, (laughs) made my life easier. So Corporate donations for us can be reused at an almost 80% rate, whereas individual donations are about 20% because, you know, hair of a thousand cats, whatever exists in your, your closet is getting into your computer and IT departments and corporations maintain devices better and they start with better devices typically. So for us, that's super meaningful. And if you connect with me at giving at freegeek.org, I am happy to work with your logistics people. We have some folks on staff who do that specifically that can help get the logistical things in place so that we will get the computers and it won't cost the company a bunch of money to send them to us. Perfect. So Hilary, thank you so much for joining the show um, and for all the important work you're doing. If there was one final message that you would want to get out to our listeners, what would that be? Oh man, big questions. I think if there were one final message first, I would want it to be, I hope you all feel the gratitude that I have for you choosing to support Free Geek and wanting to be a part of the work that we're doing. And please get involved in your community because the digital divide is everywhere. It's impacting a lot of people, more folks than you realize. Talk about it, connect with people about it, and see how you can help where you are because it's definitely impacting your neighbors, your friends, people around you. And I just want to read one of our patrons' messages here that typed in. It said, Free Geek is awesome. As someone who grew up in low income, I can appreciate organizations who help like this. I'm going to put the word out at my college about Free Geek. Maybe they'll get some more hardware. So definitely love that it is um, you know, reaching so many people already in our, in our audience. And this is just such a great organization. And can't thank you enough for working with us because you reached back out to us and helped us put all this stuff together very well organized and everything else. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Someone said you can buy free geek gear on eBay. I think you can, we have two eBay sites. Nice. Um, That's how you do your sales. Yeah. It's a part of how we do our sales. We also have a storefront and that's actually the biggest area of sales for us. Is that how people can, if they're not in the area, they can get, they can purchase hardware from it through eBay. Yep. They can. Cool. And that is a huge support to us. So my job is essentially to find all of our technology and all of the like cash donations, but we support ourselves. So I always think of free geek is 50, 50, 50, 50. So if you think about the way that we make income, it's half earned income and half donated income. And then if you think about the way that we break up our technology, we give away half of it and we sell half of it. Nice. And it's almost worked out perfectly like that. So, Cool. 
And you can find out more information about donating to Free Geek as part of the Destination Linux community by going to destinationlinux.network. We're going to hold lots of fun events on the network to help raise awareness and do our part to help with these important issues. You can find more information on our website and discourse forums. A new version of the popular pen testing OS, Kali Linux, is now out. The version is a standout feature and includes an undercover mode that you can enable to look like you're running Windows OS on your laptop it's to fool so anyone cool. you're trying to, that's trying to look over your shoulder. Kali has also switched away from GNOME as their default DE and moved to XFCE. The reasons quoted yeah. are performance issues, fractured user experience with all the various devices Kali supports, from low-end to ARM-based as the UI was different from the one with GNOME. Finally, they wanted a modern-looking theme. New features include a new GTK3 theme for both GNOME and XFCE. Kali documentation has a new home and is now on Git-powered. Public packaging, getting your tools into Kali. Butter, butter FS during setup. See that? Added, no. power, added PowerShell. The kernel has been upgraded to 5.3.9 and plus the normal bug fixes. I have to tell you, and this man, does this episode really start to come together? Yeah, we talk a lot about what distro to use, what desktop environment to use, and the truth is there are different desktop environments that are suited for different things. So, for example, if you want the best daily driver desktop environment, is undisputedly KDE, undisputedly, uh, nobody would disagree with that at all, right, guys? <clears throat> so, um, but when you start to look at utilitarian type stuff, like I want a computer to do a task, KDE is no longer a great choice. Uh, it's okay. It's just there's a lot of well, there's a lot of knob switches and levers that you have to pull in the right order to 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 get your job done. And when and and as they so eloquently point out in in the in the article, like when you That's are true. running it on everything from a 15 year old ThinkPad to a brand new you know, Samsung, Whizbang, whatever, uh, it's nice to have something that's going to provide a consistent performance and, and, and consistent presentation to the user. And how you get that is with a very pared down, very basic, very simplistic desktop environment like XFC. So I think it's a really, really fantastic choice because I really think it fits the model they're going for. The only downside is, you know, if you're using it as a daily driver, and not that people should be using Kali as a daily driver, but if you do, XFCE, to me, is not a great desktop for for uh, for day-to-day -day stuff because it's missing a lot of the fundamental functionality that I think people have come to expect with the modern desktop environment, like functionality of the super key. It's a hack on to get that to work in, in, in XFCE. So I, I, I think they made a really good choice, and I'm glad to see that this distro continues to get as much attention as it has. Man, has that been helpful in testing cameras and networks and switches and, oh, yeah. and seeing what mm -hmm. smart devices are communicating. What Gosh, do I love Cali. I mean, it's just really great. And uh, is Arch Assault still around? Well, I think Black, Black Arch, Arch is. is, yeah, Black Arch. Black Arch. So if you if you're if you're into Kali, I, I if you haven't played with this stuff before, you should definitely check out uh, Kali Linux. Give download it and, and and take a look. And while you're giving those things a spin, just to please Ryan, you should also give Black Arch <laughs> uh, a, a spin too. Kind of the same thing, except with a with the with the the mentality of hey, let's keep it really really up to date. And when you're doing security and penetration testing, that's actually a really important thing, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's funny you bring that up. Uh, I was playing with Black Arch yesterday, and um, I I personally on the machine I was using, they use Fluxbox as their desktop environment, and basically it it's it's like OpenBox where you right click to get your menu on a empty desktop, and then they have a list of tools down there like subjects. And so as you're scrolling through the subjects, there are so many tools in Black Arch 
that we, if you accidentally scroll to one of them that has, and there's several of them, 500 or so tools, it takes over your whole screen with the menu of all of these tools. And there's really, it's just not organized well. Whereas when you go into Cali, it's, it, you want to run it as a daily driver. I mean, the first time I boot until Michael told me, you're not supposed to use this as a daily driver. I wanted to use it as a right. daily driver. I'm like, it's beautiful. The menus make sense. Everything's organized. It tells you what the tools do. There is another one that I've been playing with if that I think is also worth mentioning here, which is Parrot OS. And mm-hmm. to me, in playing, because I'm getting into some of these books or taking me through some of these pen testing uh, and, and tools and things that I've been reading lately, Parrot seems even more user, new user friendly than Kali. Now, all of them are good tools. So I'm not, I'm just telling you from my experience as somebody getting new into this, that Parrot had the most organized feel to me that I was able to run the easiest. And they also have, I believe it's called OVPN setups for Kali for Parrot and Black Arch, where if you want to run this in a virtual box, you can basically import that and it sets all the whole virtual box up for you, including setting up the network and everything up, all the pre-configs for any of these. But not to take away from Kali, this is what every time Bo Weaver comes to our lug group, he boots up his laptop. It's Kali Linux. He does use it as a daily driver. He just removes the root account as having, you well, know, I mean, he uses it as a daily driver because account. he actually is a pen tester, which makes sense. That's for what him he does do. for a living. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So um, like it's, it's fine to use a daily driver for Kali's if that's your job. If otherwise don't do it because you know, they specifically I I say, agree. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I would I, obviously, I, you know, it's, it's a discussion probably more suited to having with, with Bo directly, but th- there are, there are tools that are built for specific jobs like Kali, but you have to understand like Kali does some very interesting things as far as capturing network interfaces and, and enabling promiscuous mode and, and, and things that we have intentionally turned off on the day-to-day things because you don't want to have those things on when you're connecting to public Wi-Fi and, and stuff like that. So, you know, if you have a very specific reason and you understand those risks and either accept them or are mitigating them, then I can kind of see it. But I, 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 I'd hesitate to send the message that, oh, if you're, if you're a security professional, that's, that's what it is. It's a, it's a distro for daily drivers or security pesters. Mm, no, it's kind of like taking your, the, little, the, the operating system that runs on the little flute cable tester and being like, hey, I can install SSH and I could use this as a daily driver. Okay, maybe you can. That's, that's really not best practice. Well, I mean, the, yeah. it's it's not necessarily saying that they should. It's just like if you are in a position where that's your job, it makes sense that you would. So that's, that's up to you if you want to do that. But uh, the Kali Linux, just to clarify, the Kali Linux team says that it's not meant for de- daily drivers. Right. So don't mm-hmm. do it unless yeah. I mean, if yeah. you're if you're prepared to deal with it, feel free yeah. to do that if you want. If you're a pen tester, yeah. what you should do is either dual boot the machine, run it in a VM, or run it, what I do, run it on a dedicated computer specifically for penetration testing. God yeah. knows you don't mm-hmm. want to take your personal laptop and, and, and put it in the kind of situations that right. you put a laptop in that you're going to try yeah. and beat on. So yeah, it is. It is. I, I would just give one very safe caveat here. If you don't know what you're doing, don't start playing with some of these tools because yes. you could get yourself into some serious trouble by inadvertently getting onto a network that you weren't supposed to do just because yes. this tool could do it. Just be very wary. Yes. Yeah. If Only you're t- going to do it, have the permission and have a written signed contract that you're going to penetrate uh, penetration testing on that network. And if you don't have that, do it on your own land. Don't. Yeah. And if you're just learning, do it on your own land. Don't yes. even don't yes. even get a contract because that could end very badly. Yes, that'll get you sued. 
Yeah. Yeah. So. There are or it'll get you put in jail. We talked talked about that on Ask Noah yeah. too. There's people that have been put in jail even with a signed contract now. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many great tools within here, but you do need to know what you're doing. You can take it along with some courses or some books and things, and all of those books, at least that I've read, all talk about doing things on your own land. So it, it's much safer in which tools to use and when. Um, but I, I love that Cali Linux keeps making the stuff that they work on just fits so perfectly with what they're doing, like the Windows mode. And if you look at it, it's near perfect. You yeah. basically click on it. And even when you, if you, it's not one of those things where it just puts up a wallpaper. Even when you go into the file system in this Windows mode, it, it looks like File Explorer and stuff like that as you're going through. So, you know, pen testers, part of their job sometimes is to go into a place and pretend to be an employee so they can get access into the ports or things where they can plug other devices in. And so obviously if, uh, you know, Bo walks in there and has a machine with Kali Linux on it, even people who just maybe watch Mr. Robot would be like, hey, wait a minute, that's a hacking operating system. But Windows, nobody hacks on Windows. So, uh, you know, it's it's just cool stuff that they put in here. And yeah, I love Kali. So on to some more um, OS news, and we had some feedback from the community that uh, we supposedly missed reporting elementary OS 5.1 being released. However, when we produced the show last week, i.e. last Sunday, um, it hadn't been released yet. But now it has, and so we're happy to report on it. It's been eagerly awaited by everybody who loves elementary and i'm sure it's also been eagerly awaited by the naysayers to say has it got any better or is it still unusable but it's one of those sort of marmite situations you either love it or you hate it don't compare it to marmite i mean come on (laughs) that is the most terrible substance ever made marmite situation we're talking one of the most beautiful distros ever made versus the the substance that's meant to be a gag against americans because we know you don't really eat that over there there's no way it's It's, gag it's people it's people who don't marmite is for people who don't eat it and people who pretend and say they do yeah exactly trust me it is a well-beloved english food substance sure anyway it's it's a substance for sure yeah so elementary os has a new release 5.1 named hera or hera this is the first major update since juno released last october and has the following enhancements it's got a brand new first run experience with greeter and onboarding it has flax flat pack support with side load and app center major updates around accessibility and system settings, iterative improvements across nearly all apps, Uh, the latest hardware support with a new Linux kernel and hardware enablement stack. Now, there's lots more that we could go on to talk about in the the press release and and the side-loading of flat plaques, but I'm more interested in, A, would anyone here consider using this as their daily driver and if so why and if so why not so for me i recommend elementary os and i know they are trying to get away from this comparison so i apologize for it but it's just personally when i have people i'm converting from mac to linux i recommend elementary because it just fits perfectly. It's different. I think it's better than Mac OS. And I know a lot of people like to make that comparison and elementary folks don't like it. 
but there is just similarities in its simplicity and beauty. And then elementary takes it to a whole nother level. And so I, I like to recommend it there. And the people who come from Mac OS into elementary fall in love nearly immediately because of how they do things. I also love how they are work work so hard on bringing money into the app center. So being able to give back to the developers and things. I know some people don't like it that they get nagged when they go download a piece of software that, Hey, you should donate and, you know, suggested donation amounts. I think it's brilliant. These people work on this all day long. They make these beautiful applications we use. Unfortunately, not everybody who has the financial means stops to think I should give money to this project. And this is a nice reminder for that. So I love the things that they do here. Why do I personally not use it? Uh, it's not Arch. <laughs> and the and basically on the same vein, the reason I don't use it is because it doesn't have plasma. So I mean, like it's it's their yeah. own particular. D- the uh, reason I don't show. use it is because it doesn't come pre-installed with Brioche. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a fair point. That's a fair point. I do like the fact that they have uh, their their new Flatpak support because that's that's awesome. Because I think you know having support for Flatpak is an important thing for most distros. Uh, I do wish they actually provided the FlatHub by default as an option where you don't have to manually install it. Uh, but that's understandably why they chose to not do that is because the FlatHub is not an official repo technically. And mm-hmm. because they don't have an official, because Flatpak doesn't even have an official repo, it makes it a problem to have support by default. But I think they should go ahead and do it anyway, just because the community repo of FlatHub is kind of like the de facto official, yeah. like, you know. But anyway, anyway mm-hmm. that, I think it's really cool that they did add support for Flatpaks. The thing I like about it is that the team over there at Elementary aren't afraid of breaking the mold. Now, I personally don't use it and probably wouldn't use it because I'm not into that sort of Mac-esque type uh, use of the, uh, of the product. But the fact that they actually have a guideline for developers who are going to build an application to be included, that, you know, they actually say to them, well, it must fit this ethos. You must do this and it must look like this and it must integrate. And the fact that they've gone down that road and they've, they've just ignored everybody shouting it and saying, oh, this is not the right way to go. They now have an unbelievably cohesive OS. And no matter where you go to it, if you can get used to that design and used, used to the way it works and feels, you never suddenly get that jarring shock of, oh, well, that looks different. I didn't expect to see that. Everything is just, for me beautifully molded together and it has a a fluidity about it and a, and a look and feel about it that is just amazing it just doesn't fit my workflow unfortunately yeah i think it's yeah. i think it's great looking um i mean i agree with the, the consistency thing but you know as soon as you install something that the user wants something that's not in that consistency it does feel very out of place so it's kind of like mm. a double-edged sword in that sense but then that's why they make it difficult for you to do that um, they don't make it impossible, but you have to know what you're doing. You have to know how to um, install the various components so that you can have um, app, uh, PPSs installed, etc., or PPAs, I should say. Um, and there's a couple of other things that they make awkward, but if you're a, an experienced Linux user, you can get around it. But the average person who just comes to Linux and wants to use an operating system, they're not going to worry about those sort of things because they're not going to know that it exists. So in that respect, I think they've done a fantastic job. So this has nothing to do directly with elementary because there are many 
distros that fall along this lines, but it just made me think. So the display managers for many of these, I was talking to Bo and he was going on a rant about display managers and the fact that they like to display the usernames and all of the usernames on a machine. Now, elementary has done this new thing, which looks fabulous, where when you first log in, it has all these cards for all of the users that are in elementary. Now, Bo's point was the reason he hates this for people's security, not this particular elementary, but a lot of the display managers are doing this, is now he no longer has to guess your username. If he gets to be able to see your machine, he knows every single user that's on that machine, and now he just has to guess their password, which takes Mm -hmm. 50% of his work away when he's doing pen testing. I wanted to bring it back to this group to say, you know, a a lot of display managers are working to beautify their display manager and show you all of the users that are on uh, available for you to click and just put your password. Is this a, is this an issue? That's, a, that's an interesting point because it's something I've never even thought about before. Like, yeah, it, if, it totally... Well, the thing is, if someone like Bo can think about it, so can the crooks. Yeah, and that's, for sure. And that's the bit that, that you, you, you have to be wary of. Now, you also have to ask yourself... Is that particular OS going to be used in a business type environment? Um, no disrespect to the elementary guys. Are they big enough yet to be looked at by a business to say, do you know what? I really like the way elementary looks. Let's get them in. I've got 300 users. I want them all to go across the board. Would that infrastructure be there? Or are you going to still be in the, the realms of Red Hat and uh, Ubuntu and, and other much, much larger well, distros? Even Ubuntu's used display managers that show the users mm. right there. So, I mean, yeah, I think well, elementary number one probably is big enough, but... I think there's another perspective to think about that, though, because, like, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, yes, it does make it a lot easier to know what the password is, what the username is. Uh, and if you changed it where you could just ch- click a name instead of showing the name, it would just click a button to start logging in. It, d- it would be the same situation because you wouldn't have to know what the, pa- the username is. But at the same time, don't we, you know, isn't the, the typical thing about security is like if there's physical access to the device, you can pretty much just kind of guarantee that they've already done exactly. it anyway. Exactly. So if you just. Okay, but he's not. Yeah, if he's in it, the building and he's walking by a bunch of machines that are locked let's say in this environment, like you do in an enterprise or there, where he can just rub his hand and remove the mouse and the screen pops up with the display manager and it lists all of the users. Then he goes home to do his hack. He has a whole oh. list of people of usernames that he could follow. So I don't know, man. I, I you know, I, I, I get where you're coming from. I really do. At the same time, what's to stop him from just picking the computer up and walking out the front door? You know what I mean? Like that's Michael's point. If, if once you have physical <laughs> access, I can put my hands on the thing like it, it all other security kind of goes out the window except for encryption. I guess I, I guess the idea something... is just to not have the username yeah. and maybe just have an image of saying who it is. I guess that could work, but I mean, still, really? I think that because of the physical access is a, a, an issue. I want to say in Debian, I don't know what display manager they were using, but when I was playing with Debian recently. You had to put your username and password in every time, and I remember going, "This is stupid and annoying. I have to put my username and password <laughs> in every time." And then Bo said that, and I was like, okay, well, now I kind of see why maybe in, in certain environments you wouldn't yeah. want that. But there's mm-hmm. also the I, factor, right? I, I just having a hard time wrapping my head around it, man. So, okay, consider this, right? The screen locker. Does anybody in, in on the show actually trust the screen locker in Linux? Good. Because 
the amount of times I've pulled my laptop out of the out of my backpack, and this is with GNOME, it's with KDE, I had it happen with XFCE, definitely had it happen on Unity. You open the screen up and it just didn't lock. If it did lock, like it flashes something real quick of something that was behind the screen. There, there's just all sorts of weird things that happen with the screen locker because at the end of the day, X really wasn't designed to be to, to do the things that we're doing. We just mm-hmm. shoehorned it over 25 years into doing something, right? Yeah. So I, I wouldn't trust the X screen locker to begin with. In fact, side note, that's why entails there's actually a separate application for doing screen locking but since i wouldn't trust that anyway i just i I, again i i have to side with michael on this one if you if you can put your hands on it all bets are off to begin with if you think that it's a modest increase in in security maybe but basically it's yeah i would i would equate it to i'm running ssh on the open internet and i changed the port from 22 to 22 22 and you know, it's like, oh, that'll stop them. Now they have to port scan. You know, like, mm. eh. fair point. Uh, but not to take away from elementary, this looks like a really good upgrade. And a lot of people are talking about the beauty of elementary. And I believe Jason from Linux for Everyone is doing a bunch of testing with elementary right now, including some gaming. So if you want to know more about his take on elementary and some of the things, because I know he's kind of fallen in love with it. Uh, check out some of his content. So in the software news this week, we actually got some interesting things about a personal finance software that got updated. If you're looking to keep better track of your finances or use an open source solution while doing so, you can check out Scrooge. And Scrooge is spelled with a K, so S-K-R-O-O-G-E, which if you're not, if you haven't guessed already, it is a KDE application. Oh, that's shocking. That's why it's spelled with a K. Actually, I think this is one of the better times where they made the name really awesome like they yeah because it's scrooge mcduck right that's what it's based on or ebenezer scrooge i don't know what i i want it to be scrooge mcduck so I'm, we're gonna go ahead and say it is that yeah. and uh yeah so scrooge has a new version of 2.21.0 which released and it contains a lot of bug fixes and various improvements like supporting uh using categories ac- account uh, payee this is there's a like they've already had most of this but they've improved the f- support of this and they've also improved the dashboard re- uh, readability and they've also added support for having uh, control. You can have a, you can use Scrooge as a flat pack or an app image now, so you can use it uh, without having to install it and deal with any kind of dependencies and that kind of thing. So that's awesome. I love every time I see a new application. It's like, hey, does it have an app app image flat pack or snap? Fantastic, one of those. That's all I need. So that's that's awesome. And uh, Scrooge is also like a, just a well known uh, tra- uh, finance tr- tracking. Uh, software. So if you want to check it out, there's a lot of t- uh, tutorials about it and everything. Uh, and I wanted to see what kind of software do you use for your financial management for everybody here on the show? I use a web-based uh, system called EveryDollar. And the, the reason that I used EveryDollar is because it allows me to plan what I'm going to spend rather than track what I already spent. Like tracking what you already spent is kind of like getting into your car and being like, well, I ran out of gas 311 miles into my trip. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, well, you sit down before and be like, well, here's how much gas I need to make it from here to here. So I, I kind of treat financing the same way. And and because every dollar is web-based, of course, it works with Linux. And I and then I use it on my phone. But I actually literally just installed Scrooge because I'd not heard of it. And uh, I'm going to give it a give it a whirl. Nice. And holy crap, is this interface nice. Jeez. Beautiful. I love it. Wow. that That's a raving review right there. Actually, we were looking for some financial software recently to handle uh, DLN's uh, finances, and Scrooge was one of the top contenders in there. Uh, it was one of the first ones when I downloaded it and played with it. I was like, okay, this is reasonable. Options out there, like I think a new money or something, and it just, eh, the interface was cash. so cash. 
Good now, if that. you're used to it, I'm sure it's great. And I'm sure it has tons of features and plugins and all these things people will talk about. But from somebody just trying to go to one, uh, Scrooge was one of the better options. I also like some of the online options that are not necessarily open source like Wave out there. And of course, you know, the well-known QuickBooks option is out there uh, that I've used in the past, which comes bundled with TurboTax if you do that with your taxes at the end of the year. So those are the options I've used in personal and uh, from a business perspective. Yeah, for me, it's mostly um, like we, I've also been messing with Wave. I haven't heard of every dollar, so I'm interested in checking that out. But I've used Scrooge in the past and Scrooge is kind of it's it's a good tool for personal finance. But if you want to look for business finance, uh, that's why we didn't use uh, Scrooge for the, the DLN because it's not really business oriented. Uh, but it is a great personal finance application. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Uh, we actually also had uh, the, this latest episode of the Des- uh, DLN Extend. They talked about financial software for like tax prep software. Check that out on episode six. They talked about a thread that was created on a DLN discourse forum about tax, tax prep software. So it was really interesting. And uh, you check out that episode as well as that thread on the forum. It's might uh, find some information about uh, various different things that people do, do in the community try out for their personal financing. And, and we have one of our patrons come in and say to check out accounting, a.k.a. UNTING.com. It is open source. Uh, Jacob recommends it here and says there's also an image on DigitalOcean for it. So that's one to check out. So there are nice. a lot of options, that, which is great that we have a lot of choice there that you could find one to fit your needs. But Scrooge is a very cool one for personal finance. For sure. So quick question for you guys in the States. Does every single person who works have to fill in a tax return yes. at the end of the year? Yes. Yeah. Wow. There's a certain there's, not, there's, that's not, that's there's not a certain territory. level where make, you don't have to. Yeah. If you are taxed less than five thousand dollars in 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 the fiscal year, you don't. You still are required to submit a tax return, but you don't have to pay anything. Yeah. Yeah. It also because depends on the, the, the certain section of the, like there's a there's a state, uh, state yeah, requirement yeah. and there's a federal yep. requirement and the federal requirement right. I think is like ten thousand. Mm. Yep. Well, in the UK. Um, unless you have a particular reason where you have an accountant who's trying to use tax rules to save you money, even when I was a, a company director earning in excess of £70,000 a year, the government just t- just does it, just deals with yeah. it. Yeah, we can also put into the thing that if you don't live in the US, you don't have to worry about this because you don't yeah. <laughs> you don't have this ridiculous system of yeah. taxing that you have to deal with because uh, so many countries have a system where they actually tell you what you owe rather than you have to figure out what you owe. Kind of like you yeah. order a pizza and they say, guess how much you owe per pepperoni? <laughs> we'll tell you once it gets there yeah, yeah. And, th- and then if you get it wrong <laughs> no 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 you count your pepperonis and then you send us the check and after 15 years if we decide we'll just come in and, and t- show you how wrong you were and then we'll charge you a percentage for every pepperoni you were off that would be a little <laughs> right. bit more accurate and then if you don't have the money to pay for those pepperonis you could go to jail so yeah it's a true great, story great system true story True story. I we we ended up getting fined by the state because I bought we had we have pens we have branded pens, and it, I didn't include our pens in our taxes. So we had to pay we had to pay a use tax on the pens, and we didn't pay a use tax on the pens. And the state of North Dakota was very upset with me because yeah. of my pens. <laughs> so I had to pay like whatever. So let's go move on to some gaming news. And for once, um, Ryan isn't dropping me in the mire. So I'm, I'm happy to report that Euro Truck Simulator 2, uh, which is my favorite game, and you can see me beating up on innocent caravans 
over my YouTube channel have released a new um, DLC and it's called Road to the Black Sea. And I believe that it adds a further 22 countries and umpteen number of towns. And it's just a typical Euro truck add-on that is expanding the, the depth of the game. Because although I play it in a very light-hearted manner and I use it totally against the way that SCS wanted it to be used, if you were to buy this game today and add all the add-ons, I guarantee you it would probably take you, I would guess, something like two years to cover every single road on every single map that they offer driving at the correct speeds. And although it sounds silly, it's a driving game. It's a truck game. You try and play this game properly, and it's as equally difficult as driving a real car or a real truck in real life. In fact, it's probably a bit more difficult because the um, the robots that they put in there do some really, really crazy things. So if you're into truck driving or you just like a nice, relaxing game where you can come along, and although the scenery isn't 100% accurate, it is. you often see landmarks that you recognize from certain parts of the country. So this expansion is adding Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey. Um, along with some docks and industries. Um, you, you get AI trains that go along the sides of the track and you've got different types of cars and it's just a fantastic add-on. And okay, it might be, what is it, like £13.99? It's pocket money change when you consider it up against some of these AAA games that are going to be costing you $45, $50. This is... A great add-on to a great game and if you haven't tried playing it it's it's more difficult than it looks i love it i love it to bits yep so definitely check out zeb's channel and also english bob because you guys have an ongoing rivalry of who can put a bigger engine in their semi truck and uh, <laughs> go faster down the highways but two two channels that i i am not a fan of playing this game but I am a huge fan of watching you and EB play this game because I <laughs> think uh, or be creative enough to, to think of all the fun stuff you guys figure out with it, but it's just a blast. It's, it's a very cool game um, that a lot of people who even drove trucks before still like to play this game and uh, mm -hmm. have fun with it. And, and, and the other bit that I forgot to mention is there's a huge community in the background that are providing modifications to the game. And those are the sort of the modifications that I use where you, there, there is no truck da damage, so there's no realism in that respect. But if you rear-end a car or someone rear-ends you, then your cargo is going to be damaged, so you're going to get less money for doing that particular trip. But there are people out there who will have a passion for a particular truck that's not in the game, and they will go along, they'll learn how to add it all together, and you can download that modification for Euro trucks. And there's actually been people who love the American truck simulator who brought over the Kenworths and the other American trucks into Euro trucks and vice versa. So not nice. only is it a great game, but the community there is, is, is awesome. Very cool. So the software spotlight this week is a really cool piece of software called Pulse Effects. And essentially Pulse Effects is a tool to allow you to 
add a different uh, modifications to and effects obviously to your pulse audio setup for your audio in your Linux system. And it has so many things it's really hard to describe like list off all of them because it would take forever, but they have like the one of the best things is they have a limiter, compressor, reverberation, equalizer, and auto volume effects for your Pulse audio applications. You can have different configurations for your system this way. And it allows you to have uh, the limiter and the compressor are really, really nice because you can make sure that your audio doesn't peak too high with the limiter and you can do compression to like get a better sound like a more like in-depth sound when and when you use the compressor for this application it's really cool if you don't have like hardware to do this kind of thing it allows you to do it all mm -hmm. through the software so i think it's really cool and definitely worth checking out pulse effects and we'll have a link in the show notes if you'd like to check it out yourself if you've ever wanted to be a bash ninja we're going to help you with that today, and it is the tab complete. Now, tab complete is the ability of your bash shell to automatically complete a command uh, by tapping the tab key twice. And so, for example, if you're entering in a command and you double tap the command key or the, double tap the tab key, if the command is unambiguous, it will automatically complete the rest of that command. You can also use it for file name completion, and I use that all the time. So if I'm copying or moving a file or rsyncing a file, I'll rsync, I'll type the first couple letters of the name, and I'll hit double tap. Now, if I'm wrong and the file name is ambiguous, it will just show me a list of the, uh, of the available file names. And where I do this all the time is I'm writing ISOs out to flash drives for installing Linux, right? IF equals... Uh, slash, I know it was CE, tab, tab. Oh, yeah, that's right. CentOS, blah, blah, blah. Uh, 7.5 is the one I want. Tab again, and then it completes the rest of it. It will speed up the, the your ability to, to type commands tremendously. But it gets even better because you can use this inside of a script. Use do this, tab, tab, in your bash script to execute the command completion in the script yourself. Now, I have to be honest with you. I, I have some reservations. There's something in my mind that just doesn't like the idea of letting the computer decide what my script is going to do. Like, I think I kind of want that written out. It's uh, the same reason I like to use full file path, but it is nonetheless a useful trick and it is nonetheless a useful tool in the toolbox because there are some times when perhaps, like for example, Maybe you were scripting something and you didn't know what the end of that file name was going to be, but you knew what the first part was going to be, and the second part of that was going to be dynamic. And so using tab complete inside of a script would allow you to that script to complete even if the file name changes. Yeah, what's cool about this, I think, is you could put pause commands into your bash script that then you execute, do this, and then the tab tab. And, uh, you know, for for... You would execute that and then have a pause script for listing things out like you were mentioning if you're not quite sure how their file structure mm -hmm. is. And one of the ways that I thought about utilizing this is I have an auto install script that a lot of people have liked and used and forked and things like that. But one of the things that's really difficult in updating that script is, let's say, a new PIA version comes out. And so the new file name when they hit the download is PIA235-15X, which, you know, it adds a five in there. It used to be a four. So if I hard code that into my bash script as four, when they go download the new one, it's not going to find anything. However, if I do do this with the PIA, after I type in PIA, then it automatically tab tabs. It's going to find, it's going to automatically autocomplete anything that has PIA dash for my bash script and pull that down. So I see some unique ways that you could utilize this. I think it's a pretty cool, uh, command out there to know for you bash script ninjas out there. So we want to thank each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening. However you take in destination Linux, 
Thank you very much for your support. We love our patrons and we want to give a special shout out every episode to them for their incredible support. We do a live show for our patrons so you can come and join us and be a part of the show. We also added sponsors to the mix as well. So if you don't want to support us on Patreon, Patreon, you can go to sponsors and uh, become a patron and get all of the same perks that you get on Patreon on sponsors. And we've added a bunch of new tiers with different perks out there for you to enjoy. One of those, if you can't join us on a live show, we record generally on Sundays. You still get the unedited version of the show so you can see all of the extra conversations and things that go on, as well as some of those bloopers and things that take place, which are mostly Michael, but you know the rest of us mess up every now and then. In any case, you can join this for a very, very low price. It's nearly darn near free, so go check it out and consider becoming a patron of the show. Speaking of support, become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums and our Mumble server. And by the way, while you're there over at destinationlinux.network, did you know there's a new show to listen to? That's right. It's called DLN Extend, and that's a way to listen as well. Now, that's an that's a show where they dive into the topics of the shows. It's like a show about shows. It's like a meta show. It's a show that describes the shows. All the questions that you ask yourself when you're screaming at your computer or screaming at your car as you're driving around, that's right. These guys ask those questions and then they bring us in when necessary. And when we don't show up to that, then they come on our shows and, and yell at us there. So <laughs> it's, it is the way that the Destination Linux network stays in balance. And we go. also have Linux for everyone. We have DOS Geek. We have This Week in Linux. We have the Ask Noah Show, Tux Digital, Zebedee Boss. If you want Linux content, destinationlinux.network is your one-stop shop to get it. So please visit us there. Join our community and tell us what a great job we do. Negative email can be sent to Michael at destinationlinux.network. <laughs> That's correct. So please get back to us and provide feedback or ask any questions you may have. There are numerous methods that you can do this. Email is comments at destinationlinux.org. Unless it's a complaint, in which case it's Michael at destinationlinux.org. Exactly. Our Telegram group, Discord, Discourse, Twitter, Mastodon, and so many other ways that you'd be amazed at what Michael has been able to find for us and give you a way to talk to us. That will be on the destinationlinux.org contact page. So please keep them comments coming and questions. We love to read them. We love to hear of ways that we can improve the show. Just don't ask Michael to create any more scenes. <laughs> Finally, don't forget to join our Mumble server, chat with the community, set up gaming sessions, and enjoy networking with us. If you want more content, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels you can check out. So, for example, you can go to Ryan's content at youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he fills your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb uh, at youtube.com slash zebedeeboss, where he will check, he'll show you the, the all the new stuff and the What's the the onto the Black Sea something like that for the uh, the DLC for the Euro Truck Simulator game on his Zebedee Gaming YouTube channel? You can check out my content at tuxdigital.com where I do an in-depth weekly Linux Canoes podcast called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content. You can check out Noah on his on the Ask Noah show where he, where he does a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join him and, and call in and ask any kind of question you want uh, on at the AskNoahShow.com. And of course, be sure to like that smash button and share the show on social media. So everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey your old laptop takes should take it to that free geek destination. Nice. nice. Thanks, everyone. See, we weren't too bad. I mean, 
Michael was embarrassing, but that's normal for us. But everyone else was right on point. <laughs> yeah, Hillary. yeah. They they always like to 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 mess with me because they they just have to talk and I have to keep track of editing everything <laughs> and talk. So they they they, they don't. Yeah, get that violin out. This is pretty fun. It's nice. not a bad way to wake up and you know deal with the morning. Yeah, exactly. Oh, great! I get to wake up and do an interview at ten a.m. <laughs> And my favorite part of the whole interview was you threatening to clap. That was just <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That... Uh, think, seconds, uh, thinking about my seconds. edit points. You're so nice. There you think. All right. Appreciate that. That completely <laughs> worthless, no need to clap thing. Yep. Good job. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Did Hillary just clap? Yes. That's yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Roll out of 10. I love it. I love it. (laughs) All right.